All right. Well, today being the first week of Advent, we are on the week of hope. And so this is, you know, we were singing about it this morning, hope. And, and the one song said, hope is found in Christ, right? And that is the foundation for it. And so we're going to be spending a little bit of time here talking about hope. And Darren, when he, he's preaching the same message um, over in Petersburg today, and so he found this illustration, and so I wanted to read it as we were preparing for hope. And this is a, um, an account of numerous cities around the world, Monument City, Indiana, Church of Mediano, Spain, Catskills, New York, Port Royal, Jamaica, Patasi, Venezuela, Shichang, China, all cities purposefully flooded to make possible hydroelectric energy from a dam. And so one night at a dinner, a man who had lived in such a city that was flooded fascinated his companions by telling of his experience. The town was to be flooded as part of a large lake for which a dam was being built. In the months before it was to be flooded, all improvements and repairs in the whole town were stopped. What was the use of painting a house if it were to be covered with water in six months? Why repair anything when the whole village was to be wiped out? So week by week, the whole town became more and more bedraggled, more gone to seed, more woe-begone. Then he added by way of explanation, where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. Isn't that true? If you know there is, your end is going to come to nothing, what hope do you have? What faith do you have? You're left with no power for the present. And if I were left, if I were not a follower of Christ, I would be like those that are, what's the point of anything? I would really struggle if all I thought there was to come was death and then nothing. I would have a hard time living this life, honestly. Where there is no hope or faith for the future, there's no power for the present. And so as believers, this is where our hope is founded. And we're talking about the Advent season. And so many of, our, of the Old Testament prophets, what were they doing? They were prophesying of the coming Messiah. We're going to spend some time in Isaiah today. Isaiah, many, many verses of his prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. And Israel was a nation that, man, they went through it, didn't they? They had struggles. They were in many times captivity. They were in constant battle. They were for a long time without their homeland. They were waiting this whole time for the Messiah. And so to me, what I think of the Israelites, I'm like, they would be Cub fans, right? 
they would be Cub fans. Cub fans know what it is to go season after season and hope. <laughs> and oftentimes, you know, our hearts were sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But do we ever give up? No. Do we ever, like, change to go to a winning team? No. No, right? Because there's always that hope. And the Israelites were like this. In fact, if you need a good example, Fiddler on the Roof, if you haven't seen that musical, right? And there's a couple of scenes when the dad, the poor guy, he's just living in poverty, really. And, and that day, that in the middle of his poverty, his horse goes lame. And that's when he begins to sing, If I Were a Rich Man. <laughs> he's like, Lord, I know you created poor people, but... Do I have to be one of them, you know? He has that kind of thinking going on throughout the account. It's, the Israelites had a rough time of it, and that's his story is a story of a modern-day Jewish nation that still, why? They have so much. You think of World War II, so much against them. Why? Because they are God's special people, and the enemy has always been after them. And so the Israelites, the Jewish people, are a people that know, ingrained in them. We, ha we have to be a people of hope in the midst of our tragedy, in the midst of our, our captivity. There's always this hope, however fleeting it feels, that they cling to. And so in Isaiah, these are a couple of verses that you know well. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. This is what they were after with Jesus. They wanted Jesus to come be their government. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, Isaiah 9. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so all, that's just a couple of them. All through is this constant hope that is being given to Israel. There is coming a Messiah. There is coming a Messiah. Now, Isaiah lived under a very wicked king, King Manasseh. And Manasseh was actually the son of King Hezekiah, who was a righteous king. He was a king. Now, some of the good kings, they, they, they tore down some idol-worshiping altars, but they often would leave the high places of worship. Not Hezekiah. Hezekiah tore down the, even the high places. And yet here's his son Manasseh, who is one of the most wicked kings of the nation. In fact, just to give you a couple of ideas of how wicked he was, in 2 Kings 21 it says that Manasseh seduced the people to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. 
He wanted to outdo the other nations in being wicked and evil. Later on in that chapter, it says, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides his sin by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. This was a very wicked king. And this is the king that Isaiah is living under. And Isaiah, even in the midst of living with this kind of government, see, government has nothing to do with the issue at hand in the kingdom of God. In the midst of that, Isaiah, he gives prophecies both of the first coming and the second coming of Christ. Here's, here's some for, uh, concerning the first coming. He shall judge between the nations. He was to be the branch of the Lord. He would be born of a virgin and be called Emmanuel. He would be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. An eternal government will be upon his shoulder, and he would be called Prince of Peace. The Holy Spirit would rest upon him. He would be a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, prophecies of the Messiah. And of the second coming of Christ, the branch will establish Jerusalem and those who dwell there as holy. The government will be upon his shoulder. He will be called Prince of Peace, and the increase of his government will be no end. All animals will live at peace with man and one another, and the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. The Lord will resettle Israel in their land. The deaf shall hear, the blind shall see, and Jacob's descendants will hallow the Lord's name. A king and princes will rule in quiet and peaceful habitations. The desert shall blossom as the rose. The infirmed will be restored, and the waters shall burst forth in the wilderness. These are all, Isaiah gave so many prophecies of promise and hope to the people, even as they're living within this wicked time. And what better time than when things are the darkest for there to be? The word of the Lord come to the people to bring hope and courage, to stand strong and not let this king, this government, determine how you're going to live and how you're going to worship. I feel like there's some application for us today in that. Jewish tradition, so here we have this prophet Isaiah who is prophesying all these beautiful, wonderful promises of the Messiah, and yet Jewish tradition says that he most likely was sawn in half by Manasseh, which in Hebrews 11, what does it tell us? Of all the prophets of old, how some were sawn in two, right? Hebrews 11 is all about those that lived in faith and in hope and did not stop. Concerning Samuel and the prophets, not just Isaiah, the prophets, plural who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. That sounds exciting. But others, it says, were tortured not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. 
Others had trials of mockings and scourgings, chains and imprisonment, stonings, sawn in two. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. And so these are all prophets, men and women of the Old Testament, that were living this kind of life, not walking in the revelation of the new covenant that we have today. Can you imagine? They did that with only the hope of the coming Messiah before them. And so I say, wow, let this be an inspiration to my living and my choices. I can have a hard time standing in front of an unbeliever here in this world because it takes courage nowadays and make a stand for Christ in the fullness of the revelation of the new covenant. And here are a group of people in the Old Testament before Christ are living this life because of hope and faith in the future. That's powerful. Isaiah's life is really a life of inspiration for us. And if we come into the New Testament now, when I read this passage out of 2 Corinthians, I really feel like I'm reading about Isaiah. It says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And then catch this phrase, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen in this present world, but those that are not seen. For these things we see are temporary, but the things that we don't see are eternal. And that is what Isaiah had his eyes fixed on. Not that which was being seen. I can't even imagine how it could be a discouragement to see the wickedness happening in Jerusalem. And calling the people to, hey, you need to, we have a Messiah coming. You have to look toward the future. You have to have faith. You have to have hope. In the midst of the hardship, they carried the hope. So what is this hope? We're going to take a moment to look at Romans chapter 5. So if you want to turn there. I, I think it was at Momentum that this is the new way of telling people to look up a verse. Turn on your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. And we're going to read in the first five verses. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also glory in, oh, you guys are going to be so excited, in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. 
Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Okay, I want us to kind of break this down a little bit and spend a little time here in, Hebrew, in Romans 5. So first of all, this word hope that we found in, in this text is really, the word is that of anticipation, of expectation, and the third one is the one I really liked, confidence. And so when you read this and you see rejoice in hope, you're talking about in anticipation of the glory of God, in expectation of it, of confidence in the glory of God. I, this was so much a part of the people of God. This was so much a part of the Jewish people that I, I think of the Samaritan woman. Now, we've been talking a lot about Samaritans in the last few times we have been together and how the Samaritans, remember, there, there was great division between the Jews and the Samaritans. They argued over where true worship should happen, on the mountain where they worshiped or in Jerusalem. And it was so bad that the Jews would walk around Samaria to avoid it instead of going through. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus walked right through. And he often is approaching not just Samaritans that were off limits, but women. And so in this case, Jesus walks into Samaria, and he goes to the well where he encounters the Samaritan woman. And this Samaritan woman is not living according to the laws of God. This Samaritan woman has had not one, not two, not three, but four husbands. And the one she was living with was not her husband. Okay, now think this in this day and age, that's pretty intense, right? So she's on number five, whom she has not married yet. And so this woman was a Samaritan and not a law-abiding follower. Yet hope was such a part of her character, of, of her DNA, as that which is from the Jewish bloodline, that she says, Jesus comes to her, and, and, and she says to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. This was not your faithful church-going, serving in the, you know, church kind of a woman. <laughs> she was living apart from the law of God. She was a Samaritan. And yet this woman, this, is, this hope in the Jewish people is so ingrained that she says, I know that Messiah is coming. So even this woman knows there's more to come. And so if she can grasp that, what kind of hope should we have? What kind of hope should be part of our DNA? And so we're going to look at a couple of things that will encourage hope to grow in, within us. Because there should be something that people can see in you that they can't see in other people that doesn't quite make sense. 
And so if you're saying, man, I need greater hope, greater faith, I have become frustrated with my future, things in life have not gone as I thought they were going to go, I'm about to turn 48 in a couple of weeks. And, you know, I, I, Darren is always like, whatever. I'm like, I approach the decades and I start to have issues. Because I'm the type of person that's always, you know, what have I planned to do by now? Am I doing it? What do I need to change this? And so when I was 47, it was kind of okay. That's close to 45. But when you hit 48, you're like closer to 50. And so now I'm, I'm going to spend two years now thinking about 50. <laughs> I know. I know half of you are going to come up to me today to straighten out my thinking. But I'm five decades in, and it hasn't changed yet. This is just my personality, right? And so this can happen, though. You get to certain places in life, and you're thinking, this is not where I thought I would be. I thought this would be happening by now. And our hope can begin to grow dim. And today, what I want is to, this is the power of the body of Christ, that we spur one another on. We encourage one another on. We're part of the great cloud of witness that cheers one another on to the finish line, right? And so today I want to cheer you along onto your finish line and say, let hope be fanned into flame. Now, that sounds very exciting, but how is hope developed? Well, according to Romans chapter 5, I'm sorry to tell you, it's not going to just be in an exciting woohoo service. It might be. But according to this verse, verses 3 and 4, it says, We glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope. So there is this progression of hope that takes place. There's first perseverance to be steadfast, to be constant, to endure. Let me tell you, I know a lot of believers that struggle with this very thing. They are not steadfast. They are not constant. The winds come and blow. Somebody offends them, and they're here, there, and everywhere. You, you will quickly lose hope if you are not in a place of perseverance. This really defines the Jewish people. For so many years, thousands and thousands of years, they had to persevere, knowing that the Messiah was coming. So we begin with perseverance, which leads to character in your life. Character is very simple. It means you've been proven. You're trustworthy. You have experience. Somebody would say, I have a little experience under my belt. Yeah. <laughs> Character leads then to hope, to expectation. What this tells us is that um, hope is not a wish. This is something, there's a difference between wishing for things in your life and hoping. 
Wishing is based on our personal desires. Hope is based on experience. And so I remember specifically one Sunday a few years ago, we were singing the song, um, All My Life You Have Been Faithful, The Goodness of God. And I remember that Sunday because when I came up to end the time of worship, many people were sitting, but every person that was still standing and worshiping were our more senior saints. Why is that? Because you have experience. You have seen the goodness and faithfulness of God, and it causes you to, I can't just sit right now. I have to declare the faithfulness and the goodness of God. I specifically remember that worship time. Hope is based on experience. That experience that your character has gone through, that perseverance has led through. Wishing is not based on any experience. It's just based on a personal desire. So you can wish all you want, but it's not going to come to anything. Hope is based on experience with Christ. And where there has been experience, where you have been touched and experienced Christ, you have hope for tomorrow. And so it does not mean that there is not sadness. It does not mean there is not frustrated emotions. I'm not saying that if you're going to have hope, you're always going to be cheerful and yay, Jesus. No, there's often deep grief, deep frustration, deep regret. Hope has nothing to do with the emotion. It's saying, in the midst of the emotion, I have hope. In the midst of my intense sadness and my intense frustration, I have hope in the one that can take me all the way through. I've had experience with this Savior before. And because of that, even as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I don't fear the emotional struggle. I don't fear the depression that might come through. I am walking all the way through because I have hope in the one that leads me through my good shepherd. And so I want us to look. There is a woman in the Old Testament that when I think of hope, I think of her, and that's Hannah. And so Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah is, um, her husband is married to two women, Hannah and Penina. And Penina has had children, and Hannah has not. Now, Hannah is the loved wife. Her husband loves her. She's the favorite, but she has not had children. And, you know, really, to be honest, as much as we love our husbands, in that day, the love of the husband really was not enough for them. <laughs> their significance was determined by their children. And so if for Hannah, although she's the favored and loved wife, that's not enough for her. She needs children. And so she's in this environment at home where her sister wife, isn't that what they call them, is poking at her constantly about her lack of children. It says that she provoked Hannah. In fact, the, the word of God calls her her rival. 
It says her rival provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And so I, if any of you have had trouble becoming pregnant or you know, that's a, a, a deep grief that women can carry. And Hannah understood that grief. And not only did she have the grief, but she lived in a home where she was severely provoked about it. And yet it says year by year, when Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, she was provoked by this sister wife. And she wept and she did not eat. She had the deep emotional that went with it. And so in verse 8, Elkanah, her husband, says to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Poor guy. She's like, sorry. I'd like the ten sons now. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting there, and, and Hannah is in bitterness of soul. And she prays to the Lord, and she weeps in anguish over her barrenness. And she makes a vow to God and says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. So out of her grief, out of her barrenness, she makes this vow. So as it happens, as she's praying before the Lord, Eli the priest watches her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, so only her lips were moving. Okay? And so Eli thinks she's drunk. This poor woman just can't catch a break, can she? The priest thinks she's drunk. And so Eli says, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. People around you might not always understand the grief that you walk in. But Hannah answered and says, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked, wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken. You know, the person that has lost all hope will cease to pray. And so in the midst of this sorrow, deep sorrow that Hannah has, what do you see her doing? Pouring her heart out before the Lord and saying, God, give me a male child. She's carrying this seed of hope that has yet, even after year after year of presenting herself before the priest. Still, she keeps pouring out her heart to the Lord. Why? Because she carries a seed of hope. The person that is in complete despair has lost all hope. 
And if you have no hope, then why pray? And so Eli answers and says, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And so the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Listen, when the word of the Lord comes to you, she has not seen the fulfillment or the fruit of the word yet, but the word of the Lord came to her, and what did it do? It produced hope in her. It fanned that hope into flame, and so it changed how she was then living her life. She begins to eat again. Her face is transformed. It no longer is sad. Why? Because the word of the Lord has come to her. your hope is fledging, listen, you got to turn your ears to God and hear what he is saying to you. It won't help hearing the word of people on Facebook. It won't hurt. It won't help you. Now, now the Lord will use the body of Christ to bring about his word, but if you are a person that is solely depending on the opinions of other people about your situation, it will not produce hope. It will not bring transformation in your life. You have to hear from your heavenly Father what he is speaking to you because when the word comes, it changes everything. It changes everything. And the fruit of Hannah was Samuel. Samuel that anoints King David, whom our Savior comes from, the lineage of Christ. Samuel is the one that anoints King David. The Bible tells us not to grow weary in doing good. For if you do not give up, there will come that moment when you will reap your harvest. I can't tell you how often, even this year, I know some believers that would sit in my office week after week with a frustration concerning a family member. And when that family member finally started coming to church in a regular fashion, they quit coming. They gave up just at the moment when the harvest was coming in and they lost the harvest. Hope keeps you in the place of not giving up, of what does it say in Romans 5? Persevering. Persevering. No matter how long it takes, if it's a lifetime, many of you have sons and daughters, and if it takes a lifetime, you don't give up hope. You don't give up hope. I refuse to ever, ever, ever back off. Because as soon as I step back, I say, enemy, you can come in and have your way. I refuse to back off. I, it doesn't matter if I can see or not see. This is faith, that which we cannot see. And hope, that's the... That's the ground that hope lives and dwells in. And so we're talking now about dwelling in hope. If we continue on in to verse 5 of Romans 5, it says, Now hope does not disappoint, 
because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We've been talking a lot lately about attitudes. We just finished our Thanksgiving message on the giving of thanks. And listen, attitude is everything. In Romans 12, a few chapters later, it says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And so there's this place of dwelling within hope. I'm going to live in a place of hope because it doesn't disappoint. And this is the place of faith, of saying, God, I trust your word. And when your word says hope will not disappoint, I'm going to stay in that place then. It's like you're a... um, a miner of gold. Remember the gold rush days? And there, there comes this hope of, I think that there's gold in this place. I'm staking my ground here. And you dig and you, you mine and you mine and you mine, all with the hope that you're going to strike gold, right? And, and so when the word of God says, hope does not disappoint, that means I'm staking my ground in hope. And I'm not looking at the circumstances. I'm looking at hope. I'm looking here. The love of God has been poured out in my heart by the Holy Spirit. And so because of that, I stand in the place of hope. He's already done it, hasn't he? He already gave his son. He already poured out his Holy Spirit upon the church. And so because we know this has happened, we know that hope is real, that it will not disappoint. He's already done it. And so while I stand in the place of hope and I wait with expectation, I do it in a joyful attitude, not a disgruntled attitude. I'm not looking at you. You're looking at me like I'm talking to you. I don't know. It might be Jesus talking to you right now. Be joyful in hope. While you're waiting and hoping, what is your attitude? What is my attitude? Am I patient in affliction? Am I faithful in prayer while I'm waiting? My attitude in the place of hope is everything. It really becomes... Um, an act, a spiritual act to the Lord that is demonstrating to him the hope I'm standing in. Lord, I'm, I'm carrying a joyful attitude because I really believe that your hope does not disappoint. And so if I have a negative attitude, what is it saying about hope? It's saying I don't really believe that this hope will not disappoint. While I'm dwelling in the place of hope, in Romans 15, here's one of the prophecies of Isaiah that is quoted in in Romans. There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, praise the Lord. In him the Gentiles shall hope. That's you and I. Now may the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Wow. The God of hope will fill you with joy. You have to continually in the waiting and in the hoping be filled with the God of hope, with the Holy Spirit to continually come to him, fill me again, Lord, fill me again, fill me again, Lord. It's not enough. You're in a battle season as you stand in a place of warfare for, for sons and for daughters, for health. You can be in a place of warfare. You need to be again and again filled and filled and filled with the God of hope because he fills you with all joy. He fills you with all peace in believing, in believing. And you will abound with hope. It's not just that you've got a little bit of it here. You know, I'm filled up to here. You will abound to overflowing with hope. And when that begins to happen, even though you may not see the fruit of the promise yet, because you're abounding with hope, it's spilling out. And people around you are saying, I don't know, there's some, I like to be near you. Because when I'm near you, I feel hopeful again. How many of you like to be that to people? I, they, they don't understand it because they don't know the God of hope, but you're overflowing. You're abounding with it. Don't settle for a little bit of hope. Let the God of hope fill you with abundance in Jesus' name. We know, we, we know from Hebrews 11, it is not, hope is not determined upon your situation how bad it is, how sick you are, how in financial straits you are. Hope is not, is, is not determined by that. In Hebrews 11, they were seeing difficulty after difficulty, and yet they stay in the place of hope. You have the Holy Spirit. Everybody say that. I have the Holy Spirit. We have no excuse to not abound in hope. And if you only feel like you've got a little bit, you know, I'll just say it. It's on you. It's on me. If I only have a little bit of hope, if I'm not abounding in it, it's not God's problem. It's my problem. I have not positioned myself to let the God of hope fill me to overflow. I've not allowed the Holy Spirit to come in and overflow my life with his presence. He wants to do it. He wants to do it if we will make room for him. This hope, it doesn't disappoint. We read that, that hope doesn't disappoint. In 2 Corinthians 1, it says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen, the so let it be, is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now, it is God who makes both of us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Praise the Lord. It is 
when it is founded in Christ, it's a done deal. Your hope cannot be found in your own striving to make things happen, right? Abraham kind of got a little lost in that, didn't he? When he didn't see the promised son, he didn't see the promised son, and they, they took matters into their own hands, and it ended badly. you got to stay the course, because the word says, no matter how many promises God makes, they are yes in Christ. Jesus was the fulfillment of every prophecy and how do we know God's promises are yes and amen? Because every single prophecy was fulfilled in Christ. He met every single prophecy. And so when God speaks his word to you, he will fulfill it in Christ. He's caused you to stand firm in Christ. He's anointed you. He's put his seal of ownership upon you. And he's put his spirit in your heart as a deposit of what is to come in heaven. Here's the thing about the Jewish people is that the promise came. The promise was fulfilled in Christ, but they didn't recognize it. They didn't see it. He didn't come like they wanted him to come. And often this can be something we need to guard against. We want the promise to be fulfilled the way we want the promise to be fulfilled. You might have a son or a daughter that is not following God and and that promise of your children not walking away from the Lord, you're not seeing it being fulfilled. They seem to be running in the opposite way, and you're getting frustrated and losing hope because it's not happening. Their, their coming to Christ is not happening the way you want it to look. You don't know their story. You don't know what God wants to do through their life. And you don't know what their journey how God is going to use that in the kingdom of God. You got to let God be God. And you got to let him unfold the journey. And you got to let him make the answer to the to the promise the way he wants it to look, not the way you want it to look. Disappointment comes when we determine what the yes is and not God determines it. You said, well, I wanted this to happen. I wanted this to happen. You've determined what you want to happen. Disappointment will come. This is the power of the word of God. When, when you know the word of God that is spoken to you, then it's God saying, this is what I want. And then there's no disappointment. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. Jesus came and he interrupted the religious world, right? He interrupted a lot of lives. 
Some, yes, embraced that interruption. Some despised that interruption. And so the question that we have to answer is, am I okay with God interrupting my life the way he wants it to be? His hope, his promise. Some things feel like an interruption, and it can feel like this can't be a God thing, but you just never know what interruption might be a God answer. I've heard too many people testify time and time again of how it seemed like this was a negative thing, but God used that interruption because he had a plan and a purpose. And if you don't have your eyes fixed on him, you won't be able to see what he's doing. God will not disappoint. And God works all things for your good. That's the beauty of it. So the question is, do you want to be a person that is thriving? Or a person that is slowly wilting? We all know this passage in Isaiah 40. And I want to use the NIV's version because it uses a different word. It says, but those who hope. The other versions say wait. But those who hope, look eagerly for in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. It's when you lose hope that you begin to cease to run. The person that has hope of finishing a race will make it all the way through. The person that has no hope of it, man, by mile two, you're like, I'm done. In Jeremiah 17, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. The person that trusts in the Lord, who hopes in the Lord, here's what his life looks like. He shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding its fruit. It, the reminder that we have out of the Israelites is when um, they were in slavery, right? And they were making all of the bricks and they increased they said, we need to put more work on them. Now they aren't just making the bricks, but they have to go find the material to make the bricks. And what did they begin to do? Multiply even faster in the midst of the hardship. We've been talking around here about multiplication lately. And multiplication can happen not just in the good times, but as the Israelites saw, in the bad times, in the hard times, multiplication can begin to happen when you have the God of hope. And so the person who hopes in the Lord is the person that is thriving. You're not slowly dying because life is so hard. You are thriving because the God of hope lives within you, and you are blessed by him. You, are not, you don't have to be anxious when things are difficult. That's the kind of person I want to be. I don't know about you. 
I want to be a thriving person. And to be a thriving person is a person that trusts in the Lord and hopes in him. 